You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Uh, back with me and Emily, of course. And we are still in the book of Judges, but we are moving on from Gideon and his descendants. We're going to catch up a, with a couple footnotes and uh, not literal footnotes, but a couple very shortly, briefly mentioned people. And then we're going to move on to uh, the story of uh, Japheth. Jephthah. No, not Jephthah. Japheth. That's Noah's son. <laughs> right. Jephthah. Um which I'm sure lots of people are going to be really interested if you're familiar with this story to hear all the craziness that it ensues. So oh yeah. I'm ex- I'm excited to get into this one because it is one it's very controversial and uh in in itself just as a story. Mm-hmm. But two it's got a lot of very interesting details that um put it to the whenever you put them back in the right context make the story make a lot more sense. Oh yeah. Well and I and this is, like you said, one of the most hotly debated stories. Um, and there's so many ways that we can go with how to interpret it. So we aren't even going to get to the good part this week. Um, that doesn't mean turn us off. Just just keep listening because it's going to be You'll, you'll need this to understand the rest exactly. of it. Exactly. Exactly. So I promise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Uh, so, but before we get to him, we're actually going to talk about Tola and Jair. They're... Um, Mentioned in the first two verses of, uh, is it the two verses? Uh, first, they got first five verses. They got five uh, verses. Five whole verses, not even, it's maybe just slightly under a quarter of the chapter. <laughs> so we got these two judges and they don't have much said about them, especially when you compare them to, to Gideon and Samson and even Abimelech. Uh, we, we don't have any details about their life. Uh, there's no military actions recorded. There's no mention of God's activity during their time. Uh, basically, all we know about Tola is that he judged Israel for 23 years. Mm-hmm. He's a man of Iskar. He lives in Ephraim, and he's buried in, I can't read my li- writing here, Shemaiah? And, um, yeah, uh, Sh- Shamir. Okay, Shamir. That's an R, not an A. The Bible's easier to read. Most usually. They, they print it in better <laughs> font than your handwriting. Right. Uh, so his, his name means worm. Uh, once again, what are biblical parents thinking? Uh, the only two personal details we really have about him is he's the son of Pua and the son of Dodo. We, we don't know who they are. They probably had some significance to the original audience. That significance has been lost to us. Uh, but that's it. Uh, he evidently did okay because there wasn't much of a critique. And then the uh, second judge in this part is Jer, and he has 30 sons who ride on 30 uh, camel, uh, 30 donkeys, and they have 30 cities. Uh, he's judged for 23 years. He's <laughs> from Gilead. Again, no real personal um, details offered with him. And we don't really have any kind of background. It's just these two guys that, hey, they they were judges. Right. So. So interestingly enough, uh, he said he's 
he was uh, the first judge. He said he was Tola? buried in Shamir. Uh-huh. So I was curious about what that, what that meant. And it apparently means, it, 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 I saw here, it looks like it means worm as well. Oh, okay. Um, but also, it looks like there's a type of tool called worm, which is for splitting stone. Well, that's interesting. So it's not just like the... It's not like an earthworm I'm going to put on my fishing hook. Right. Yeah, it's a little different than, uh, well, than what we have that, there. That makes more, more sense. Uh, yeah, it, there's, you know, not a whole lot to say about these guys because the writer of Judges didn't give us a lot to say. Uh, we can read some things into it. You know, evidently, um, there, there was a certain amount of peace and prosperity if uh, Jer had 30 sons with 30 donkeys and 30 cities. So that's a little different mm-hmm. than what we've seen before. Uh, the, the writer of Judges also uses that reversal mm-hmm. thing that we've seen over and over again in the book that, you know, Tola is important because of who his father was. Mm-hmm. Jer is important because of who he fathered. Right. So now, uh, you know, what kind of teaching points you want to draw out of that? Uh, if you got suggestions, I'm open to them. <laughs> right. Yeah, there's not a whole lot really. I mean, if there's anything to be learned here, yeah, let us know because we're, <laughs> we're kind of at a loss here. I, um, other than, I mean, the only thing I can think is that it, you know, just kind of like the, uh, who are they, the, the Bereans mentioned in Acts, you know, it says they're very righteous and there's not much you hear about them. You know, they're better than the Thessalonians. Um, but if, even the Thessalonians, even, even those in the Thessalonica still have two books worth of material dedicated towards correcting them about some things. Um, so it's kind of the, the less you hear about some people, the better. Yeah. So maybe we learn more from the screw ups than we do from the people who get it right. <laughs> uh, well, you know, actually there is, I mean, there, there's kind of a school of thought in uh, lots of, I mean, basic, I mean, I've heard this in so many different areas that you do learn more from your mistakes than, you know, if you go out and play a perfect game Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in sports or if you go out and do a perfect performance, you're not learning anything necessarily in, in those situations. But if you can uh, learn how to correct a mistake, you're actually growing in your art or mm-hmm. your skill. Um, so, I mean, there, there is that aspect of it because I know that um, for me, uh, you know, I'm a guitar player mm-hmm. and uh, I, I know that for, for me, it's hard. Like I hear rhythms but I just hear what they are and just repeat them uh, in the in the action. But it's hard for me to count them because I don't necessarily just break a rhythm down. I can just recreate it. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like a different, it drives uh, my wife nuts who is a classically trained musician whenever I'm trying to teach her a strum pattern or something because it's, it's very hard for me to just break it down into a 1E Andy, 2E Andy or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, so this makes me feel better. About the time you try to teach me how to play guitar. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's hard to explain. And, and, it, and it, it actually, I mean, it has given me some difficulty in learning some more difficult rhythm patterns because when I, it, it takes me longer to break them down mm-hmm. and then reassemble them. Uh, so I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's, I'm a fantastic musician or anything, but well, the, there is that, um, you know, the difference between innate talent, which, I mean, I think you've got, you were born with a lot of that because you can play pretty much anything you want to. Uh, I, whereas I can play nothing except for the radio. 
And that's, you know, there's a difference between a musician who works for it versus an, a musician who is born with it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there just is that distinction. And, you know, it, it's not just music. I mean, we have an aunt who is phenomenal with mathematics mm-hmm. and numbers and arithmetic and everything, all that makes, makes sense to her. Yep. And trying to get her to explain how she goes through the process sometimes is difficult because it's just <laughs> so fast in her brain. Yeah. So, so I don't know if that is the point, but, but there's, I mean, yeah, that's kind of a, a speculation. Fun, Have fun with that. <laughs> fun thing, yeah, talking about, yeah, and that reminds me, actually, I want to, I do want to share this uh, tweet that I saw earlier today. Uh, face ID doesn't work if I'm behind a pop filter, apparently. <laughs> um, our, your friend, Tim Fall, uh, he tweeted, uh, we're talking about like, you know, the, the less that's said, the better off the right? situation. Uh, he said he was responding to someone uh, posting that it was a slow news day and and he's uh, Tim says, I feel like this should be a call and response. The leader says, slow news day. The congregation would say, let us give thanks. Exactly. So, <laughs> that's kind of. Exactly. You know, you got to love Tim. He's, kind of, he, he's got a way with words. Yeah. Uh, no, and, I, I, I do. Yeah. If, if you're not following Tim Fall on Twitter, go check him out. Absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll post his, a link to his Twitter <laughs> in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Tim. I'll have to let him know that we talked about him. So. <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. Uh, yeah. He will. So, okay. So we're, we're back in judges, uh, which is actually fitting because, uh, speaking of Tim, uh, so Tim, because no, Tim is a judge, <laughs> judge you have yeah. to, kn- no one else is going to get that. Oh so. yeah. But he's going to love it. So, okay. Okay. So ahead. anyway, so we're judges 10, um, verses six through 18, and you aren't going to have this in your Bible, uh, like on a heading or anything, but this is the beginning of Jephthah's story. And the reason why it's the beginning of Jephthah's story is because Jephthah's story is going to mirror Gideon's stories in, in a lot of ways. And it's going to mirror Abimelech's story in a lot of ways. And, and what the writer is trying to do is point out that these events, the, these sinful events that bring bad consequences, they're not one-offs. They, they are entrenched ways of and methods of behavior within the culture. And so we keep seeing these repeated themes because we need to see that this is repetitive entrenched sin that the nation is engaged in. Mm. So just like Gideon's story begins with the prophet showing up and we, we discussed, you know, the significance of his appearance. Jephthah's story is beginning with this confrontation with God in Israel and What's going to happen is God's basically confronting Israel about the gods that they have served. And he lists off seven different gods and he lists the Baal, the Asherahs, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Amnon, and the gods of the Philistines. And each of these have points of connection back to previous stories, or at least the first five do. So basically, we get the gods of Canaan with the Baals and the Asherah. Mm-hmm. King Aram uh, was the king who oppressed the people during the time of Othniel. That was our first judge back in Judges 3. Uh, Moab is the one who was oppressing the people uh, under Ehud. And again, back in Judges 3, that's the latter part of that chapter. Sidon is referred to in Judges chapter 1, verses 31, as the people that Asher did not drive out. Mm-hmm. And so these first five, they, they draw attention to the fact that not only had the people served these gods, that these were the gods 
who of the people who had oppressed them, that they had accepted the rule of not just the kings of these foreign lands, but the gods who had sponsored the kings of these foreign lands. Mm, mm. And so it's God's basically saying, you were so messed up. You have some severe problems if this is the God you want to serve instead of me. Kind of like kind of like a divine Stockholm syndrome. Yeah. Like <laughs> Yeah. I, I hadn't put that term to it, but yes. So but they're they've got problems. I mean, and we do see this where the the idea that the one who oppresses you is the one that you respect. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that's part of human nature, that if someone has a greater level of power, that there's a certain amount of respect. It may not be healthy. Right. But, um, you know, we see this a lot in the, in the clans and tribal warfare throughout all countries and cultures where you did rule by the ability to overthrow and oppress. Mm-hmm. So now the last two gods on this list, the Ammonites and the Philistines, these are actually going to be the gods that show up with Jephthah's story and Samson's story. So you you have this looking back, but then you have this hint at the future. Okay. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. So God's omniscient. And that's being pointed out in the words of of this prophet. And the the list also corresponds perfectly with uh, Deuteronomy seven. And so we have the same list of nations, and these are the nations mm-hmm. who are supposed to be driven out. These are the children of the Rephaim and the Nephilim and, and the giants. And I think we forget sometimes that these are still giants. And Right. Well, and, and we also kind of have this, I specifically told you. Right. You know, it's like, it's, it's whenever, you know. You can't if, claim ignorance. If you're a parent, you know this. When you tell your child to do something and, or not to do something, you know, um, you know, small example, <laughs> don't jump on me when I, you know, don't jump off the arm of the chair onto my belly. It hurts. Right. Don't do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they do it three minutes later and you get mad at them and they're, they're going, what? They're crushed. What, 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 what I do? And you're like, no, I specifically just told you not to do this thing. Right. And you just did the thing. So that's well. Again, I, we've we've kind of referenced it before. Judges really is, um, they've been acting like that rebellious teenager. The the people of Judges at that point, um, they're they're acting like that immature child mm-hmm. that's still testing the limits. And we're seeing once again, just like we talked about with Abimelech, they have become so canonized. They're mm-hmm. so much like the people they were supposed to get out of there that it's starting to be difficult to tell the difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the big problem, and this is in that, that prophet's decree, is that he forsook and abandoned Yahweh, and they were not serving him. And now, what you need to remember in this culture, it's not unusual to serve several different gods. You right. can serve a familial god, an ancestral god that's been attached to your tribe or clan, along with the God of that land, that would have been normal for, for ancients. This was not an either or equation. Well, well, it would, it would make sense though, in, in a, in a, in a polytheistic society to serve other gods because they Cover don't all have, your bases. they don't have an almighty God, right? They don't have the God who created the whole earth. They have gods who work in certain regions. They have gods who work on certain projects. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a weather God and work on certain projects. 
Sorry, it just sounded funny when I was after this. It came out of my mouth. But um, you know, you you've got the the god of the birds and the god of the the sea. You've got the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god. And so, you know, you're gonna have to worship all these different gods if you want everything to work together the way it's supposed to. And so, you know, we've kind of got that covered with one god and going, uh, no, uh, this one actually runs all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have to worry about, you know, I don't have to worry about, oh, did I, did I pray to the rain god uh, to get enough crops? Or did I pray to, uh, you know, did I pray to the sun god to make sure that we'd get enough sunshine to grow the crops? Did I, you know, mm-hmm. you know, just things like that. Did, did we pray to the god of healing enough? Uh, are we going to get a plague? You know, just, I mean. There it, wasn't one guy to cover it at all. Yeah. And so, I so mean. So you would, had to cover it all. Yeah. It would make sense if, if your view of God is too small, then yeah, you're going to need more gods or other things to prop up God. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think that's a good well, <laughs> it, illustration there. Well, and the thing is, it, because that was so common, they were actually having to go out of their way to reject Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So this isn't just, hey, we brought other gods to worship alongside of you. We're actually going out of our way to exclude you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the the final straw that you know that breaks the gods back. Um, you know, it's it, but the, it kind of leads to this whole situation where God's having this very emotional response to what's going on mm-hmm. and so you know and this, it goes back to like we said earlier uh in the study is you know this was not an accident right you know because you know we talked about the kings who built the king who built the altar with mm-hmm. his own hands and you know so that or they say the king but whoever it was who was who was in charge of stuff who mm-hmm. built the altar with his own hands and you know and if you've done any kind of uh building projects you know i've done woodworking and can't imagine working with stone and carving at the time you know trying to build this stuff so you know it's it's time and it's effort right yeah you just slipped on banana peel oops i'm worshiping bail now yeah Uh, yeah it doesn't doesn't happen happen. (laughs) yeah so yeah and so it makes sense that god in verse seven you know god is angry and he sells the people into the hands of the philistines and the ammonites you know he's got two oppressors and he's going to allow the people to be crushed and oppressed for 18 years and we're, we're told the geography we have gilead which is east of jordan and we have judah benjamin and ephraim and this is really the heart of israel as a nation uh japheth uh, who's coming up uh, he's going to be from gilead and samson is from zora which is about 18 miles west of israel in that in that second geographic location mentioned mm-hmm. so again God is omniscient. He, he's not only dealing with the sins that have happened, he's already got his eyes on the sins that are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And we need to remember that. At verse 9, I thought this was interesting. Israel was severely distressed. I, this has got to be the understatement of the year. Because when you go back to Gideon's story, they're already living in caves trying to get away from the Moabites. Mm-hmm. So how bad are things now? How I, I it makes you wonder what's going on that they're severely distressed. Violence <laughs> and much of it. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> no. Well, and and the thing is, when you read this, the the emphasis in this passage really is on God's response to the people. It's not really about what the people are doing so much as, um, yes, we're told what they're what the people are doing, but we're told 
what God is thinking and feeling about what the people are doing. And so the people cry out, verse 10, this is the only time that we're told specifically what they cry out. And, And they say, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served Baals. Now, on the surface, this seems like a a positive step, but God's response seems to suggest that it's not. Mm -hmm. And so we got to keep reading. And so verses 11 through 14, we've got seven times that God saves Israel listed. There's seven deliverances. We've got the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites. Okay. Now, in the Septuagint, it's Midianites. We don't know who the Moanites are, so that's a really interesting question that I'm not going to get into because it's kind of beside the point of the overall theme. So we have seven betrayals, we have seven nations, and seven deliverances. Okay. So we've got the symbolic use of, of seven. We talked about this some last episode. Seven means completion. This is the totality. This is not supposed to be an exhaustive list of everything God has done for Israel or everything God will do for Israel. He's just saying, I have totally and completely saved you over and over again from every enemy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you still aren't where you need to be. And so in verse 14, I love God's response. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. Mm -hmm. Echoes of Gideon's dad. Yeah. I, well, and, we, and we, we see that too, and we see, we see that, and then we see that uh, with, uh, I think we've mentioned this before, with uh, Elijah mm-hmm. and, you know, with... You Mount know, Carmel? Mount Car- uh, yeah, he, with the prophets of Baal, and he's going, you know, if whoever's God is God is going to have to show himself to be God and mm-hmm. serve the one that actually can save. Yeah. So, go ahead. Yeah, no, and that's the thing. God, God sees right through what they're doing, and, you know, they... Okay, let's just be real. Worshiping Baal was a lot more fun than worshiping Yahweh. They, I mean, we got to have wild parties. There mm-hmm. were orgies. There was lots of drinking. It, it was just the epitome of the, every college student's good time. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it, it, it made sense that this would appeal to them. And God's like, if that's what you want, you can have it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And throughout the Bible, I think it's one of the things we see over and over again. God says, if this is really what you want, you get to have it, but there's going to be consequences. And what I think is interesting in, the, in this scenario, the people aren't being chastised for a lack of faith. Right. They're being chastised for not being faithful mm-hmm. because they never lose faith. Every time there's a problem, they don't go to the Baals and the other gods. Mm-hmm. They always come back to Yahweh because they know he is the only one who's going to save them. Yeah, yeah. They want the fun stuff that goes with all the other gods. They don't, and this is what it boils down to, they don't want to obey. They have no desire to obey. They just want the privileges. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there's a sermon in there somewhere that I'm, think? Gonna, yeah, yeah, I'm going to try to keep myself from... Uh, from preaching? Stick to the text. Stick to the text. <laughs> okay. Well, I am. So uh, here's the text I'm going to bring in just to kind of prove my point just a little bit. Jeremiah 7, verses 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice, eat the flesh, for in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, 
I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Mm -hmm. So God's saying obedience is what brings blessing, not faith in this situation. I mean, I think faith is a component. Mm -hmm. But he's saying obedience is what's going to mark you as my people. Mm -hmm. And this is what's going to bring prosperity, at least in Canaan, whenever they come into that land. So, you know, we need to be careful not to go too far with the prosperity gospel thing, because we aren't going to manipulate God into giving us things that just doesn't work. We we can't bribe him, uh, which, by the way, this this account's actually going to demonstrate. But. There is blessing and obedience, and I think the Bible is, is very clear about that. And the, the thing is, obedience is not supposed to be a cold observance of the law. It's supposed to be the expression of that relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the desire to protect and maintain that relationship. And I think that this is one of those stories I was surprised at how relational Jeff the story becomes. And the, it, it's okay. It's just cool. We're going to keep going. <laughs> so, right. so where are we going next? Okay. So the discipline, um, you know, okay. I started to read my notes there, but I don't need to, cause I already said that cause I'm ahead of myself. So, but what I want to do is I want to, to transpose this kind of exchange that's going on into a relationship scenario that I think that a lot of us can identify with this if you read the, what the people are saying and you kind of look at it from the view of a marriage relationship, I, their, their speech back to God is very much the one of an abuser. Honey, I'm sorry. Honey, I've changed my ways. If you love me, you'll let me. Don't be mad. Here's a present. Because the people put aside their, their other gods and they worship Yahweh for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's actually kind of funny because you and I have had a conversation similar to that about how, um, and I'm going to probably make some people mad here, <laughs> but we really do um, kind of uh, mirror that every Sunday, um, some of us, and I myself have. included probably, where you just, you know, you are, <laughs> you, don't live, to- you don't live the way you're supposed to all week, and then you go back and, and you... God, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It won't happen again. Please forgive me. I'm going to placate. I'm going to smooth things over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, we've had that conversation regarding mm-hmm. modern church worship and, and certain worship songs that we've, we've seen and, and, uh, and some of the ways that uh, people are, are led in the worship services, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to go too much deeper into that. I think but we've demonstrated your views on that before. <laughs> I think we've talked about that a little bit. So, go ahead. but yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole thing, it's basically this idea that, you know, they're telling God what they think he wants to hear. And even though the language seems to be demonstrate some repentance, God in his omniscience, he, he's not accepting it as repentance. As a matter of fact, the word repentance isn't even used. It, it's almost this lip service kind of um, event going on because there's no real change of heart. I and remember, in the past, throughout Judges, crying out has never equaled repentance, not once in the book of Judges. Uh, even the putting the way the other gods feels more like a manipulation. Uh, matter of fact, when I read this, uh, one of the things that sprung to mind was, you know, my 
ex-husband way back when, every time he got caught with pornography, would put it away. Mm -hmm. But then what happens the first time my back is turned, it's right back. So Mm -hmm. it feels like a manipulation. And, you know, I could admit I might be bringing my own baggage to this text. But on the flip side, maybe my experience has given me a little insight into what's going on here. So I. Well, yeah, I don't think you're bringing your own baggage to the text on. I mean, and you may be. Who knows? But right. uh, But I think given the language that God uses here, it's uh, it's pretty clear. And especially when you look at the the way that Baal worship was right was occurring yeah you know, so. with all the sexual rituals mm-hmm. and and i think we forget that this is part of the reason why sexual purity is so big in the bible because it was that abuse of our the gift of sexuality let's use sexual it, ethic i hate it, to use purity in that well, context because yeah. it, it has that has been so abused it has been and there's a lot of baggage um yeah but I mean, there's there's this the 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 abuse of sexuality for the for the worship of these other gods and particularly when you factor in genesis 6 and the horrific events that happened there and then when you start to look at the canaanite culture like we do with abimelech you begin to see why the abuse of sexuality is such a huge issue within Mm -hmm. judaism and christianity this is not something that god's just oh i want don't want you to have any fun There, there is a theological reason for it so um, in verse 16, one of the phrases there is he became impatient over the misery of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a weird wording. Um, you know, the words there can mean angry, exasperated. Uh, he couldn't tolerate, mm-hmm. frustrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, it says his soul was short. Okay. Uh, and which you've got to love the Hebrew in the picture. Um, it paints, but this is, I was amazed at how many commentators really felt like they couldn't get a grasp on this. And there's so much back and forth debate on, on what it should mean. It was funny because, you know, I've been using web and block uh, mm-hmm. as my commentary, um, commentaries on this, um, passage. Yeah. And like web and block were talking to each other in the commentaries and quoting each other. And mm. so, uh, but so basically Webb and Raddick, Raddick was um, a rabbi said that this was um, a statement that God will relent and that um, he, he will help them, but he's losing his desire to help them. Mm. Okay. Okay. Block sees this as a dis total dismissal of Israel that God in his frustration is just like, go do your thing. I'm not even going to mess with you. Right. Uh, They all pretty much agree that the people of Israel are being insincere and manipulative and and God's seeing this. But I think if you put this into the framework of that abusive relationship, Mm -hmm. what you see is this is God's getting tired of seeing Israel hurt herself. No, that makes sense. Because I mean, what do you feel if you're in that abusive relationship and you're watching that that spouse, that loved one do these things, you feel frustrated, exasperated, you feel angry, hurt, betrayed, all the things that having a short soul lead to. So I, I read this as not as a statement of intent, which I think that's what Block and Webb and all the, the rabbis were trying to get out of it. Right. I read this as an expression of God's emotional response to the actions. Right. 
So, you know, and in that emotional state, God is drawing back from them. And that sounds horrific because we're told, you know, God's always supposed to be there. He's always supposed to be on your side. And, and he is. I'm not, I'm not discounting that. But in a human relationship, once again, putting it in that context, we call this setting healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's not wrong for God to say, you are taking advantage of your status as my bride, as the one that I've loved and called out of Egypt, and I'm not going to let you do this. Right. And we can't say that's wrong for God to do if we're saying, I mean, every counselor out there is going to tell you that's one of the first things you need to do. It's set a boundary. <laughs> set yep. a healthy boundary. Yeah, and, and that goes, I mean, that, and that's not just an, I mean, not just in abusive relationships. You got to have healthy boundaries wherever you are. Right. Right. And... Suddenly, I'm looking at my my notes and trying to figure out um, what we're doing. Okay, I'm I know where we are now. Okay, so uh, this is book setting, of judges. Yeah, well, this is setting us up for Jephthah, as mm. we said, and um, and what we're going to notice as we move forward, God's drawn back. He set that boundary. So as we read through Jephthah's account, what we're getting is God is not raising him up. God is never mentioned in his rise to leadership. Right. He's completely silent. And the only time that God's spirit is with this particular judge is when it's during the actual time of battle. Okay. So there's going to be some interesting parallels that are going to come out. So verse 17 and 18, the Ammonites, they assemble for war and they're assembling in Gilead. And so quick summary, the, the, the leaders of Gilead realized that they need a leader, but instead of going to God and inquiring, you know, who should it be? Can you help us? Mm-hmm. They began looking for somebody themselves. Okay. And this is kind of where the situation, the political situation is when Jephthah arises, arrives on the scene. So now we're moving into chapter 11. Gotcha. So, so this is where Japheth actually gets there. Yes. This is where we actually see this name for the first time. And we're, we're introduced to him in verses one through three. Uh, we know he's from Gilead. His father's a Gileadite. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, his name is actually Gilead. So probably this text says that. Whether it actually was or not, that's a matter of debate. We've talked about names and how they're used before. Right. He's a mighty warrior. So again, connected back to Gideon. Uh, but his mother is a prostitute, Azona, um, not a Kadesha. Um, Azona just means she was in business. Okay. She's not a sacred or a temple prostitute. Fair enough. I was uh, about to ask what the difference was. I know we've covered it before, yeah. but I just want to make sure we're clear for this episode. Right. And so now there's some dispute. Uh, even the rabbis debated this. Um, the rabbi said that this is not um, necessarily a word for prostitute. It could just mean a strange or foreign woman. Okay. Um, it can, in Hebrew, the word can have something to do with uh, dealings with foreign gods or nations or people. Uh, it, it can also just mean to commit fornication. So yeah. she may not have actually been his wife. She may have just been a woman that he had an affair with. Um, it also... Okay. It, just, it, it just means not a wife. Yeah, pretty much. And so we... If you look at Abimelech, Abimelech's mother was a concubine. Mm -hmm. And so this is even a step down from that. 
And, and so we really don't know who she was, but the main thing, what this word does tell us, um, she could have, there's a couple of possibilities. She could have been a woman that an Israelite father sold into prostitution. Okay. So there's a violation of Leviticus 1929, not right. supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Daddies are supposed to take care of their daughters. She could have been a Canaanite woman, which would have been a violation of Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5. Mm-hmm. Either way, somebody's sinning here. Right. The only reason why this man exists is because of sin. And in engaging in this kind of sin, what we've got to remember is not only are people being disobedient to God, they're endorsing practices of the Canaanites. Right. They're, they're saying that the Canaanite practices are superior to what God has um, demanded of them. And, but the, the main thing here is that this is pointing to when there's a son of a different wife, a woman who's not, or a different woman, that the son is not being considered equal yeah, to the other son. Yeah, he's not considered a full member of the family. Yeah. So Gilead's sons, they drive um, Jephthah out because they didn't want to share the inheritance. And they, again, we have massive transgressions, violations of the Torah. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 22 commands the Israelites to care for the outcast. Mm -hmm. So they should have, he should have been the first one that they cared for. Uh, Leviticus 19, 33 through 34 commands us to love one's neighbor as themselves. And this, you know, how much more for a brother. Mm -hmm. So uh, under the simplest reading of the hereditary laws, Jephthah should have been included because hereditary rights were determined by the father, not the mother. Right. So the brothers and this time at this time, it's the brothers who are out of line, not the outsider. OK, so again, yeah, because I mean, guess we, I guess we do see that um, with the uh, with the sons of Israel. Well, you know, go back to Gideon's story. Abimelech, it, Abimelech was the outsider and mm-hmm. he was wrong. Yep. So the ju- you know, writer of judges, he, the way he's painting these stories together you keep seeing everything keeps getting flipped and twirled and spun. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. It's, it's really very well written. Yeah. So doesn't matter who it is. Somebody's screwing up something. It's basically pres- what the writer's telling us. Yeah, pretty much. So when he's, he's driven out, he goes to the city called Tove, which is kind of funny because immediately he surrounds himself with worthless fellows is, mm-hmm. How it's translated again, not, not the sons of Bleal. Yeah, actually worthless fellows. Actually worthless fellows, but connecting us back to Abimelech, mm-hmm. who hired the worthless fellows. And uh, Webb actually he translated this as outcast, um, less evil, but just not the most desirable people to have in in your life. Fair and enough. so the idea that this place kind of served as a gathering point for those who weren't a part of the, you know, the society as a whole. And so verses four and five, uh, sometime after the, the Ammonites attack and no one volunteers to, to defend or to assemble an army to lead. And the leaders of Gilead, excuse me, they, uh, they go to Jephthah and they say, hey, we want you to come lead us. And to, to fight against the Ammonites. Yeah. And again, you know, 
bringing in someone. And I think, again, you were bringing in the that idea of Abimelech. Mm-hmm. Bringing in the outsider to take care of business. Right. So that, yeah. So I'm with you. <laughs> okay. So the, and, and the Hebrew is really specific here. At this point, what they want, they want a military leader. They are not looking for somebody to govern the nation. They aren't looking for somebody to, to be a king. They've already been through that. They know that it doesn't work. So they, they go to Jephthah and they say, hey, you know, come, come help us defend ourselves. And in verse 7, it's very interesting. He says, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? Now. Some of the things going on here. Jephthah seems to be identifying the elders of Gilead as his brothers. Mm-hmm. So we have questions. Are they literally his brothers? Or is it more of a... They're complicit. Yeah. Well, and or, yeah, or, you know, use like that in the political speech. You know, we're all brothers of this city or this nation. Or um, one, one, quick, one quick question that I had... Um, are we supposed to be also seeing, and the answer I'm going to guess is probably close to a yes, but <laughs> are we supposed to be seeing um, parallels between Jephthah, um, Abimelech, and David in the gathering of the people? Because you have in Samuel 22, um, or yeah, 22 verse 2. First or second Samuel? Uh, well, first. And it says, uh, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became a commander over them. And they were with him for, uh, for about 400 men. Uh, That's interesting. So I was wondering if we're supposed to be seeing that, because uh, you also have David who's looked on, not looked for as the leader by right. his brothers and his father. The youngest. And so I kind of, um, I kind of wonder if there's kind of this, this parallel there that, that we see with these people setting themselves up in the uh, in in everything, and maybe to be a contrast of of these counterfeit kings that came before. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was actually thinking uh, along the lines of a lot of the people that Jesus interacted with were the outsiders and the outcast, and uh, you know the the largest population for a long time among early Christians were women and slaves. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't have that full st- standing in society, mm-hmm. um, you know. So there, I think there's two ways to read it. Um, the very cynical way to read it would be that those who are dissatisfied with the status quo are the first to to gravitate to a revolutionary kind of leader. Mm-hmm. Um, that, but then there is the idea that in God's compassion, He sends leaders who will minister even to those who are broken. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess, you know, I probably a lesson to be pulled out of that would be you've got to find that balance. I mean, are you are you looking for people who are genuinely hurt and, and in need of compassion or are you looking at people who are just angry and embittered at the system? Right. I I I, and it, I think when you're when you are genuinely hurt, sometimes it easy it is easy to become embittered with the season, with the system. Uh, so, you know, finding the discernment and wisdom to figure out where that balance is, maybe that's the sign of a good leader. Right. Because, uh, you know, 
was David right in, in what he did? I, I honestly, I'm not real familiar with that story, so I'm going to have to go back and study it. So I don't want to make a call on that. But, yeah, but I was, I was just happened to think of that. Uh, you know, if yeah. we do get into Samuel, we might uh, dig more into that connection and see if yeah. there's anything there. Uh, there, there I, I wouldn't be surprised. And, and the thing is, once again, it could be a polemic because so often with, with these stories where there is that reversal where David is God, the God-appointed king, it, it could be the foil to um, Jephthah and, and his uh, worthless men. Sure. So, and the distressed men. Uh, but in this speech between the brothers, kind of what I'm picking up on, I, I kind of think it really was his brothers because there's no denial. Right. And ten, there tends to be, you know, if they weren't directly involved in casting him out, why didn't they just, it wasn't us. Mm-hmm. I, th- that tends to be human nature. It, you know, I want to distance myself from that unsavory situation. Yep. And so, but I, the other thing that really stood out to me is his words echo God's words. You know, why are you here? You're, you're, you're upset. You're in great distress. Why did you come looking for me? Didn't you have someone else you could have chosen? Right. God's, you know, you go to the gods you chose, stick with them, let them fight for you. Jephthah, stay with the people you chose because you didn't choose me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there, there's this, begins to be this really interesting play and, and contrast between God's response and Jephthah's response. And so the, the people, you know, they, they approach both God and, and Jephthah in a similar manner. And it, we've got, again, that time of distress. And both of them want God and Jephthah to save them. Mm-hmm. Now, God sets that boundary, but Jephthah, he takes advantage of this. In verse 9, he demands more. He, he's not willing just to be their pawn. He demands that they give him uh, that he lets them, they let him be the head mm-hmm. that they let him rule over them. And he, he puts a condition on it. If God's, you know, gives the Ammonites and in, Ammonites into my hand, then I want to be your ruler. I want right. to, I want to be your King. Um, and he does invoke the name of God. Doesn't seem to be, you know, a very pious act. Pro- yeah. Know. Probably more formality than anything. Oh yeah. Oh Yeah. And the elders respond, oh, yeah, absolutely. We're going to make this vow and we're going to evoke the name of God too. And Jephthah, he, he and the elders return to Mizpah and the people are so excited when they get there. They don't even wait for him to win. They automatically declare that he's going to rule over them. He's going to be their military leader and he's going to be the head of the nation. And he, the, the verse says he spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. Okay. So it's a really weird event going on here because there's no formalized ceremony. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's just kind of this spontaneous proclamation. Um, Mizpah isn't a, a sacred place. And typically when you um, enthroned a king at this point, you wanted it to be done in a sacred location. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the flavor of a sacred ceremony, even without all the trappings. And, you know, really his rise to power should have been condi- conditional at this point, but the people don't seem to care. Yeah. Well, it actually, I mean, and, and I know there's, I'm not sure if there is a, a parallel, but it kind of reminds me of uh, when God says, uh, 
basically says, will you follow me? Will you obey me and follow my, my laws? And they don't even, they're like, well, what are your laws? They're like, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's I don't like, need to know more. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it kind of reminds me of that. Just kind of that attitude of like, yeah, we'll go ahead and sign up for this, even though we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> well, and, and that's, but that's the whole thing. There, there's this, there's a ton of parallels between Jephthah's relationship with the Gileadites, Gileadites, it's a fun word to try to say, and God's relationship with Israel. And because, okay, so just to point it, you know, make it very pointed, they're both rejected by their families. Mm-hmm. Israel is God's family. Right. And so they're, they're both in that time of distress. They both are seeking help from the one they rejected. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at first, both of them, Jephthah and God, reject the appeal for help. Right. You, you didn't want me. I, I don't need to help you. Uh, Israelite, the Israelites um, and Jephthah's brothers make apologies for rejecting them and use that very manipulative mm-hmm. language. God totally rejects the apology. And Jephthah seems to accept it. Okay. And he, he seems to, you know, okay, I get it. But at the same time, they both see through it. They kind of, they, it's like, I know what you're doing here. But, but we'll play along. We'll play along. Because it does kind of get me something of what I want. Exactly. And, you know, in, in Israel, when God, when God rejects the, the apology, they reinstate his worship. When Jephthah um, is, first makes that refusal, they come back with, we'll even make you the leader. We're okay with, with putting someone we hated over us if you'll just accept our apology. It'll mm-hmm. be okay. Um, you know, and then this is where we start to see the contrast because God, he's frustrated and hurt over what's going on. Jephthah uses it to his advantage. He's right. willing to take advantage of, of that emotional chaos that's going on and that great need. He, he doesn't have compassion or empathy with them. He, he's seeing this as an opportunity. Right. And so you have the, these almost two identical situations going on with the, with the two main characters of this part of Judges. And you have one who truly loves Israel, who sets that boundary and says, I'm going to let you work it out and you need to grow up and you need to figure out what's good for you. And then you've got Jephthah who says, hey, I'm going to exploit everything for my own benefit. And so you, you really do get to see that contrast between true love and what appears to be love. And, you know, Jephthah, he, he, he knows what's going on. He, he's not stupid. And you're, we're going to see this in, in the story. He's, he's got some... He, he's got some ability and some smarts about him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course. Well, I mean, it says he's a mighty warrior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the thing is, he's willing to participate in this very dysfunctional relationship if it means getting what he wants. And, and I think that's, that's the big distinction. And I think when we read this, we're supposed to see that, that there is this, um, you know, God's not going to be manipulated into participating participating in a relationship that's not only not good for him mm-hmm. it's not good for Israel right Jephthah he he's the antithesis of this 
And I think what we're seeing is we're moving Israel out of that rebellious teenage phase that we saw with Gideon and everything. And we are moving it more into that marital kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, what we, and so when we see that, that shift and we kind of start to see these things within the marriage relationship, what we see from Jephthah, we, we see somebody who's willing to be in a codependent relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and if, you know, I've been there, I, I've gone through all this. And if you guys want more history on that, then uh, Scandalous, uh, you can find it on Amazon. I talk about it there. But when you're in that codependent relationship, one of the things that you really derive your sense of identity and value over being useful. Mm-hmm. Uh, God says, my identity is not bound up in being useful. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, my worth to and my, my um, worthiness of being worshipped isn't dependent on being useful. Right. Um, Jephthah is willing to accept manipulation as love. And God's like, no, I, I, I see it for what it is. I will not be manipulated. You don't get to buy me off. Hmm. And a lot of times when you're in that abusive relationship, the first thing you want, you want that payoff because the, it is cyclical. You do get that buy off. You get that, that, that high of a wonderful few days or months, whatever, wherever you are in that cycle. And that, that manipulation is close enough to love that you're willing to accept it. Right. But the, yeah, I, I, yeah I, kind of, I kind of follow what you're saying there. Well, and the, the final thing that is so big and most people who are in those codependent relationships don't want to admit this. And this is a hard one. And one that I had to uh, work with is we think we're the saviors. We're right. the ones who are going to fix them. We're the ones who are going to make everything all right for them. Another way of saying this, we think we're God. Mm-hmm. And so even though we're the ones being abused, we're doing it out of a sense of pride and arrogance that says, if I just do this right the next time, I can make everything better. And what I love about the story is God demonstrates if you're the one being abused in a relationship, this is the proper response. You set that boundary. You recognize the lies and the manipulation for what they are. You draw back not to be cruel, right? but because they have made a choice and you need to respect that choice. And so, you know, so often in today's world, when you know, God doesn't immediately answer a prayer to fix something, uh, critics of God are willing to say, oh, well, see, he's powerless. He really doesn't care. He doesn't love. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's God saying, this is the boundary I've drawn because you've been acting in disobedience. Not all the time. I don't want to, you know, that's not a blanket statement. Sometimes we just live in a broken world. But there are times that the reason why we haven't experienced the joys of that relationship is because we have been the abuser in that relationship towards God. And he still loves us. And so, you know, he's saying that we need to have faith in his ability and his, his love to, to be able to walk in wholeness. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, when I read this, like I said, I, I know that my, my background does influence my interpretation of this very much. Yeah. But at the same time, I I'm seeing it. And I think maybe 
this is why it's so important to have so many people reading the Bible, bringing their own perspective and own filters to it, because I don't think somebody who had been in a whole functioning relationship would have seen these, these codependent, abusive themes between Israel and God and Jephthah and the Gileadites. Yeah, no, that, no, that makes sense. And, and really, I mean, I like what you said about having more people coming and bringing what, what they see to it, because, you know, there is, of course, you know, the, the rabbis, you know, applied mm-hmm. this to the Torah, but that it's like a diamond with 70 faces. Right. Um, you know, where, where we are, you know, and you can apply that, I think, to the entirety of the Bible and even mm-hmm. a, and a lot of stories in general mm-hmm. that where you can read it one way and get something else out of it that someone else would not. Oh, yeah. Well, as I'm reading this and I'm like going, it would have been so good for me when I was looking at what to, the proper response to my abuser was. Mm-hmm. If I could have said, here's how God handled it. Right. And so this is I know this is the right way to handle it. And that I don't have to accept an apology. That's the other big thing is I don't, I didn't have to accept the, oh, look at me, honey, I'm doing better now. Mm-hmm. As Well, yeah, yeah. well, and there's, and I mean, you, you've mentioned before the whole forgive and forget thing. Right. And there is, um, you know, there, the, the, I think we tend to, especially in marriages where there is an abusive situation, I, I do feel like we hold that over people's heads. Mm-hmm. Uh, with forgive and forget, or if someone comes to you and asks forgive him, forgiveness, uh, you know, forgive them seven times, 70 times. But right. I think, I do think at some point we have to make that distinction between what is actually an apology mm-hmm. with repentance mm-hmm. and what is uh, the formula uh, apology to get what you want. Well, and I think that's why we, you know, I, I, uh, it's kind of interesting, right? Right now, there's a big movement against against the sinner's prayer movement, you know. Right. And um, whatever, you know. <laughs> I think it's to me, it's the same as as you know, creeds. Really, it's it's a guideline to to talk right. about forgiveness and what that what repentance means. And and I think we do have to look. I mean, we don't have to because we can't. But God looks at the heart of the people mm-hmm. who are. Uh, turning to him and and I think that you know it's not the prayer that saves you right it's it's whether or not you have a repentant heart and I do think that that the reason that God put that criteria there that it is the repentant heart is because that's not actually I mean it's not something you can fake well if it was just the right words then we're just casting a spell right and that's the thing that that's the difference. God is he is relational. And and honestly, that's where he's got it over somebody who's in, in an abusive relationship because he did look at their hearts mm-hmm. and he says, no, I see what you're doing. You're using me because, you know, I am a faithful God mm-hmm. and but you don't remain faithful to me. And so that that's whenever I started bringing in the marriage analogy. You know, that's one of the things that a lot of people have a hard time just trying to discern is when do I say enough's enough? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And God did say, hey, I don't have to accept an apology and act like everything's okay." And I think that's one of the things that we do have to pray for wisdom and discernment. And, you know, we need faithful counselors in that um, to to help us determine uh, whether or not the apology is sincere, whether we should draw that line. 
And but for me, just to see this was like, uh, I know there's somebody out there who's going to mm-hmm. go. I needed to hear that. And, you know, and it doesn't just have to be uh, marriage. It can be, you know, friendships, friendships parents, kids, even kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's painful. And I'm not saying that it didn't hurt God to set that boundary. I think the text reflects that. And um, not doing, sometimes doing the right thing doesn't always feel good. Right. And I think the fact that we can see God saying this is the right move, but he's still hurt over it, uh, it that should encourage us that we're not alone and mm-hmm. that this isn't something that's just um, just unique to us. And so that God does join in with us in these relational issues. So um, th- it kind of surprised me when I read through this. I did not expect to see that in this story. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So... I know this is the part of the story that um, a lot of people skim through real quick because they want to get to the more exciting part, but we'll be getting to that probably next week. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, do you have anything else or is that the end of your notes? I think that's it. That's it. We're out. (laughs) Awesome. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, We're glad to have you. Um, Feel free to be part of the conversation. Hit us up over at Raven Creek SC on all social media, ravencreeksc.com. Get you to the website where there are blog posts, companion pieces, show notes, and uh, some other things. Uh, one other thing I do want to draw your attention to, there is a, a little button on the bottom that says support. If you click that link, uh, you can feel free to visit our Patreon page. Uh, we do have some perks there. I actually uh, redid some of the perks. Um, nobody lost anything, but uh, I did make some of the other tiers a little more accessible if you don't want to spend quite as much to help us out. If uh, you do want to help us out, we do encourage you to only give uh, not uh, as you would to your <laughs> church, just this is kind of an extra thing. Um, you know, I don't want right. to, I don't want to elevate you. ourselves that, you know, <laughs> be sure you're, you're doing, uh, you know, g- give as, as you see fit. And, um, if you don't want to give money, um, please, uh, share, share this and comment. write us a review comment. Um, because that does help us, uh, get found by people who are looking for theology podcast. And, um, we definitely want, uh, people to to find us and uh, hopefully benefit from some of the material that we've been able to gather. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us and uh, we will see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.